Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. The Bowery Boys episode 349, The Queensboro Bridge and the Growth of a Burrow. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And it's the year 2021, Tom. Actually, I kind of feel like it's like a little bit of 2020 still. I still have that hangover going mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. Almost there. We're almost, almost there. (laughs) But we are trying to cross on over to the other side. And so we thought that discussing the story of a bridge would bring some like fresh, new cleansing energy in to begin the year. Yeah. All that fresh air, you know, (laughs) and and not not just any old bridge, because we're talking about a bridge to the borough of Queens, the Queensboro Bridge. Ah, the the Ed Koch Queensboro Bridge. Call it by its name, Tom. Oh, right. Excuse me. Yes, the Ed Koch Queensboro, named renamed after the Bronx-born mayor of New York, of course, Ed Koch. Yes. Uh, no, no disrespect for his honor. <laughs> now the Brooklyn Bridge, you know, gets all the tourists, of course, and a lot of you out there love the Williamsburg Bridge mm-hmm. or the George Washington Bridge. But the Queensboro Bridge, uh, which links Manhattan to the borough of Queens, the very first bridge to do so, as a matter of fact, well, it plays a very critical role in the history of the entire city. Today, we'll be talking about the origin of the borough of Queens and how something as common as a bridge was able to change its entire fate. Now, before the consolidation of 1898, which created Greater New York and the five boroughs, much of Queens was relatively sparsely populated, with most residents living in a few key towns, villages, and one actual city, Long Island City. Now, this bridge, of course, would closely link Queens, finally, with Manhattan, but also it would link it to the rest of the world, really. You know, other parts of New York were wildly overcrowded during this period. And we're talking the very start of the 20th century. But with the opening of the bridge in 1909, new residences, new industries and factories, you know, they could move in. They had so much land to develop on. And they could develop in communities, you know, as far and wide as from Astoria to Bayside, uh, Jackson Heights, Flushing, Jamaica. They all experienced an unprecedented burst of new development. And all that development, all that growth was thanks in no small part to this bridge that um, has become very famous, iconic for a number of reasons in pop culture, uh, which we will be discussing later in the show. But of course, it also inspired a rather groovy folk song by Simon and Garfunkel in the 1960s. So slow down, Greg. You move too fast. (laughs) Join us as we traverse the tale of the Queensboro Bridge and the growth of a borough. Slow down, you move too fast. You got to make the morning last. Just kicking down the cobblestones. Looking for fun and feeling groovy. Feeling groovy. So, Tom, will you do us the honor of the very first Situate of 2021? Absolutely. Today, we are discussing the Queensboro Bridge, the Ed Koch Queensboro Bridge. That's borough without, Greg, any U's, G's, or H's. It's an incredible way to spell <laughs> like, borough. Almost like Zorro. No. 
Maybe. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I mean, it's easier to spell it this way if you're playing Scrabble. Oh, yeah. Anyway, this is a steel cantilever bridge that stretches across the East River from Manhattan between 59th and 60th Streets over to Queens and Long Island City. And along the way, it has two support towers that stand on Roosevelt Island. The bridge was completed in 1909. That's 11 years after the consolidation of the boroughs into Greater New York, and just months before another bridge opened crossing the East River, the Manhattan Bridge. It was the third bridge to officially open over the East River. That's right. The Brooklyn Bridge had opened in 1883, the Williamsburg in 1903, and then here in mid-1909, the Queensboro opened months, as I said, before the Manhattan would open uh, later in, in December of 1909. And today it is still a very busy bridge. In fact, the latest stats I could find were from 2016, when 170,000 vehicles passed over the bridge daily, which makes it actually the most heavily used East River Bridge in New York City in terms of vehicle passage. Really? <laughs> that... It's surprising. That that bridge has had a heck of a lot of cars on it over the years. Cars and more. Um, and you said cantilever That's right. bridge. Okay, because uh, people may be familiar with suspension bridges, but this mm-hmm. is a, maybe a new, a new concept for some. What is a cantilever bridge? Right, as opposed to a suspension bridge, like the Brooklyn Bridge, um, Manhattan Bridge, and many others, where cables hang down, you know, to hold the roadway in place. Cantilever construction means that support for the bridge, support under the roadway, comes from only one side where it's attached uh, to one of its towers or to an anchor. Okay, don't be confused. I want you to think of a diving board. Okay. Think of that long platform, but the diving board is only anchored at one end, right? It wouldn't be much of a diving board if there was an anchor on both ends. No, the other end is like flopping about. That's right. And in a cantilever bridge, the platform or the bridge's span is extended out during the construction and only anchored at one end. However, unlike a diving board, this is done from two towers facing each other. Okay, And those spans meet in the middle and are then joined. So... I am that this is indeed what I am now visualizing two facing diving boards mm-hmm. where the tip of the diving boards are then attached mm-hmm. to each other. And sometimes even there's something that even bridges those two, right? Yeah. So these two are reaching out over the East River towards each other. Well, technically, in this case, it's four. There are four diving boards, if you will, because you have two cantilever spans, one between Manhattan and Roosevelt Island, and the other between Roosevelt Island and Long Island City. Roosevelt Island really kind of helps things out here because it offers, you know, solid ground to plant additional towers. But I have to point out uh, that diving boards are wobbly things. Mm -hmm. (laughs) By definition. (laughs) Yes, but maybe not so much as a bridge. That sounds a little concerning. Well, right. In These aren't obviously diving boards. And this is why the bridge then has tons of steel truss work above those spans and beneath it. You know, it's like it's like a giant erector set that Mm -hmm. are keeping things supported and everything in place. The Queensboro Bridge rises 135 feet tall and it's 7,450 feet long if you include all of its approaches. And that's a good setup. Tom, that's for just the bridge, but I feel like we need to take a big step back here because this is a bridge to Queens, Mm -hmm. and we have talked endlessly about the history that has gone on in Manhattan, and many, many times about the history that has gone on in Brooklyn, but but what was going on in Queens before it opened in 1909? Ironic, isn't it, in that Queens is actually the largest borough in terms of land size, And by 1909, it was kind of booming. It was going through a little mini boom. But let's, yeah, let's step way back because the Burroughs story for much of the 17th and 18th and even 19th century is one of villages. Uh, The earliest villages, if we go back to the Dutch days, 
were those that had been settled by English Protestants, including Maspeth in 1642, Flushing in 1645, or as it was known, Vlissingen. And then a few years later in 1652, they also founded Middleburg, which was later called Newtown, and then Elmhurst. And then four years later in 1656, the town of Jamaica, or originally Rustorp, was founded. And those villages were, to be clear, settled in New Netherland. That's right. Uh, yeah. Right. So then when the when the English came, and then into the colonial period, of course, uh, after 1664, um, it would take on a different name. Yes, the English province of New York would then be divided up into 10 different counties, one of which was Queens County. But still, during the colonial period, most of these most people around here lived in these villages and worked in farming. No doubt growing food that would, of course, feed the many thousands of people who would live and work in New York. And, well, and also in Brooklyn. Yes. And those places, those market towns, were getting easier to access in the 19th century with several different innovations in transportation. Um, transportation innovations being a major recurring theme in the development of Queens. This first one, though, I was just going to mention is the development of several turnpikes in the 1880s and 18-teens. Greg, mm. we really don't spend enough time talking about turnpikes. Have you ever we noticed? Need to do a show. Yeah, we should do a show called Turnpikes! Exclamation point, <laughs> and maybe even turn it into a musical. Who I knows? was just going to say that. <laughs> We'll talk to somebody about that. Um, <laughs> but these new improved roads, these turnpikes, even if you had to pay for them, certainly made things easier uh, for farmers who were trying to get to markets in New York and Brooklyn. But things more or less, we can say, are pretty agricultural mm -hmm. throughout this whole region up until this time. When do things start picking up in terms of, I guess, more urban development? Um, with, you know, throughout the 19th century, Queens County was still considered the, quote, Garden of New York. But I think that it would be another mode of transportation that would really accelerate development around here, um, putting Queens on the fast track. Mm. Have any idea what I'm talking about here? <laughs> uh, could it be the Long Island Railroad? Ding, ding. That's right. It started, <laughs> the Long Island Railroad started service in 1836 with service just between Jamaica, the village of Jamaica and Brooklyn, but that would obviously expand and competing railroads would also start serving the area. These railroads would make it easier for farmers to get their goods in to sell, but it also made it easier for people to live farther out, you know, and then take a, a train to a ferry mm -hmm. to do business in the big city of New York. So all of this is going on. And then meanwhile, new villages were forming in Queens County, like Astoria, which was founded in 1839 in western Queens along the East River. So like the early days of Brooklyn, actually, like one like major push of development actually came from commuters, mm -hmm. those people who worked on the island of Manhattan, which was New York. People could live here in Astoria. Or even farther inland in Queens, especially along the new railroad lines that were going down. And when you consider, you know, in the mid-19th century, the immense population boom, you know, that was sort of dominating New York, really the second half of the 19th century, you see why New Yorkers would start to choose to move out to these villages and new developments out in Queens County. But even by the mid-19th century, it wasn't that people were merely living here and working somewhere else. Many of the industries and factories were finding that Queens County was an ideal place to start up a business. Or to move their existing business. Absolutely, because there was more space for factories, for distilleries and breweries and other industries. Many of them located in Long Island City and along Newtown Creek. Long Island City, by the way, which incorporated as its own city in 1870. Um, and in doing so, they folded in Astoria and Steinway and Ravenswood and some other villages and hamlets. And you did a whole show about Steinway moving their factory to Astoria in the 1870s. Yeah, many, uh, many years ago. If you, uh, we'll, we'll bump that one up on the website. But Steinway was one of the major industries that bet on Queens County. Uh, in fact, they are still there today. That's right. So you're not painted a picture of a 
you know, a landscape that's actually quite complex, that it's not, mm -hmm. you know, just farms. We have uh, villages, towns, even one city. We have, we have factories. We have factory towns. And you know, the population's only growing larger and larger. And yet, correct me if I'm wrong, you can't really get from here to New York across the water unless you're just on a ferry, right? That's right. There were many different ferries, but the only bridge, you know, by the end of the 19th century that had been open to cross the East River was down in Brooklyn, the Brooklyn Bridge, which opened in 1883. So, yeah, you had to float your way across to Manhattan. Had anyone ever tried to build between Manhattan and Queens? Well, one company had been trying, uh, the, the New York and Long Island Company, which formed in the 1860s in Long Island City. And... Their bridge plans uh, would be discussed as if they were ready to go. You know, when you read about all these early bridge plans, the let's just say that the most enthusiastic supporters tended to be the real estate industry. Mm -hmm. In the 2008 book, The Queensboro Bridge, written by the Greater Astoria Historical Society and the Roosevelt Island Historical Society, there's a real estate ad from 1893. Okay, 16 years before the bridge would actually be completed. But the ad shows a map of Queens, and it includes a, quote, new bridge that stretches from Astoria to Midtown. So they were already, even years before anything was officially even in the works, real estate was already selling this prospect of a new bridge to investors and homeowners. Would that company build anything at all? Well, in the 1870s, they moved forward with a plan for a bridge between East 77th in Manhattan and 34th Avenue over Roosevelt mm. Island. That stalled in the 1870s because of various, you know, financial panics and such. But this bridge fever, this passion, would consume other people as well, including the fascinating story of a man named Dr. Thomas Rainey. Mm -hmm. Now, briefly, I'll just say that Rainey had been born in 1824 in North Carolina. Then he ran away from home. He taught school out west. And then he developed a, quote, mathematical technique which he then published and he lectured on before establishing newspapers, including the Cincinnati Daily Republican, okay? And then from there, he moved to Brazil, where he started a ferry service, which made him a fortune. Sounds like a, a renaissance man. But how does he get to New York? And what's, how does he get involved with bridges? Well, he moved then, having made his fortune in Brazil, he moves to Queens County in 1874 to Ravenswood, right? Very chic. And according to his 1910 obituary in the New York Times, he, quote, devoted all of his time and energy to furthering his project of a bridge over Blackwell's Island. He spent all of his money and ruined his health in his efforts to get the men and capital to carry out his ideas, going many times to Washington and Albany to interest political leaders in his plans. These were for a cantilever bridge primarily intended for railroad use to cost $6 million. And his bridge project didn't pan out either. No, all that became of Dr. Rainey's bridge idea uh, was that they sank a caisson for the bridge in 1881 in Ravenswood. But that was about it. He just couldn't get enough money to make this move, and so it fizzled out. However, he would not be forgotten, because the spot where his bridge would have touched down in Queens at 34th Avenue is today known as Rainy Park. Oh, that is a historical tidbit, Tom. <laughs> That's what we get paid for, Greg. <laughs> Well, it sounds like then th there's always going to be this financial issue, right? And so there kind of needs to be some sort of grand plan to get this bridge plan off the ground. Yeah, you needed big money to do this. You know, the Long Island Railroad also had their own plans to develop their own bridge for their own needs because they were running trains right up to the western end of Long Island, that is to say, the Queen's side of the East River. And then they'd have to float their passengers across, you know, to Manhattan. But their plan, too, didn't go anywhere. So by the end of the 19th century, these kinds of large-scale projects would become much easier. And it's because, in this case, by the end of the century, this bridge would no longer be linking two different cities 
together, the bridge would be serving one city. Right, because on January 1st, 1898, this is the date that marks the formation of Greater New York, collecting all five newly created boroughs for this greater city, including Manhattan, Staten Island, or Richmond, Brooklyn, which was the former city of Brooklyn, the Bronx, and then Queens was the fifth borough. Although what is actually our borough today is is only a portion of Queens County. The rest of the county went off and became Nassau County. That's right. Suddenly, New York City had huge areas of Long Island here to develop. And unlike Brooklyn to the south, I mean, Brooklyn was, was you know, built up in, in many different directions by 1900, but not Queens. In the year 1900, I mean, you mentioned that there were many developments all over the place, but it still only had a population of about 153,000 people. So this was a unique opportunity to help take some of the pressure off the overcrowded neighborhoods of this large city. It was an opportunity to properly plan its expansion, which is not a luxury that New York often had earlier in its career. Mm -mm. And it also obviously had the, the backing of the real estate industry, which was just licking its lips, looking at all of that undeveloped land. Right. And they they desperately wanted a bridge because, first of all, they could technically use the Brooklyn Bridge and the Williamsburg Bridge, but that was quite a distance to travel. And the civic leaders in Queens County obviously looked down at their neighbors in Brooklyn and saw how much development had followed the opening of the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, but what really brought about then, finally, the development of this Queensboro Bridge? Well, you know, it, it does have a lot to do with the Williamsburg Bridge. So in the year 1901, as the Williamsburg Bridge was being completed, it certainly wasn't done yet, there were a lot of cries uh, from Brooklyn civic leaders to duplicate that process, you know, further north up here at Queens. And so the city began developing what would be called the Blackwell's Island Bridge, so named because it would rise over that particular island in Queens. Blackwell's Island, which would later be known as Welfare Island, and then today Roosevelt Island. But at the time, yeah, it was an island filled with institutions, uh, prisons, hospitals, uh, and so on. Mm -hmm. And so this bridge would shoot over the island to Queens. So in 1901, work actually began to acquire land on both sides of the bridge. And they even had like an initial design from the engineer uh, named R.S. Buck for a multiple span cantilever bridge with suspended spans. But this first plan was quickly rejected. Why? By whom? Well, by the brand new commissioner of bridges who was appointed the following year in 1902, an engineer named Gustav Lindenthal born in the year 1850 in the Austrian Empire. Now, Lindenthal was an engineer uh, who had a specific eye towards aesthetics, okay? And here we are, 1902. New York is in the throes of this movement called the City Beautiful, which is a movement of filling public spaces with beautiful architecture and monuments of great beauty that sort of reflects the power and privilege of your fair city. A very optimistic city planning moment. Yes. But isn't it kind of ironic, though, that here in the in the midst of the City Beautiful movement, you know, the Williamsburg Bridge would be constructed, and I don't really, I mean, don't take offense at this, listener, but <laughs> when I think Williamsburg Bridge, I'm not, you know, um, awestruck by its beauty. I mean, grandeur, perhaps, but it, it isn't, it's not universally considered to be a beautiful structure. No, I mean, it, it was critically panned when it began rising over the East River. It's kind of unfair because the only thing you had to compare it to was the Brooklyn Bridge, mm -hmm. which, of course, is unbelievably beautiful. But Lindenthal definitely held the view that this bridge was a bit of an eyesore. And in fact, I would say his whole tenure here as the Commissioner of Bridges is influenced by criticism of this particular bridge. Thus, a new Blackwell's Island Bridge plan would eventually be constructed with an eye towards a more resplendent span. 
So did Lindenthal then like, did he make the existing plans for a bridge, Buck's plan, actually more beautiful? Yes, uh, more or less. He pretty much threw out Buck's plan and came up with something that was a little bit more aesthetically pleasing. Mm. Um, He actually got this plan approved by August of 1903, and construction began almost immediately. And how was Lindenthal's plan different from that earlier plan specifically? What had he done to the bridge? Well, he altered the cantilever truss design a little bit. He actually narrowed the bridge from 120 feet wide to just 80 feet wide, but then added a second deck. Mm. He also brought in a young Brooklyn architect named Harry Hornbossel to kind of glam it up a little bit more, you know, to throw in those fineries um, with domed masonry towers. And then those curious ornamental finials. Mm-hmm. And then those finials would have decorative spires on top of those. It's kind of making the whole thing look like a radio tower. And thus taking the whole bridge up, believe it or not, to 406 feet above the waterline. Yes, those those towers are sort of capped by something very pointy. They kind of look like something you'd buy at Restoration Hardware. (laughs) (laughs) Or or something to puncture a balloon. I mean, they they have a... (laughs) Yes. They look sharp. (laughs) Literally. Um, But, Tom, there's actually one final decorative detail that I want to mention, because in many ways, it's the most unique feature of the bridge, and that's actually below the bridge. So knowing that the Manhattan approach in particular was actually going to go over First Avenue, which was Mm -hmm. going to be a very sort of well-traveled thoroughfare here, the bridge planners decided to actually make it elegant. Now think about like underneath like the Brooklyn Bridge, for instance, like no one would call that elegant. But here under the Queensboro Bridge, they would create an interior space, like a cavern almost. And it would be lined with beautiful Italian tile work by renowned builder Raphael Guastavino. Guastavino and his famous tiles. Of course, you can find them in the Grand Central Oyster Bar. Yeah, I mean, Guasavino tile, you can find it in Ellis Island, the Cathedral of St. John the Divine, and here, underneath the bridge. It's really quite surprising and and still very beautiful. And when the bridge did open in 1909, this space would be used as a food market. So the plan is approved in 1903. It opens in 1909. Mm-hmm. Uh, did construction go smoothly? Hmm... No, (laughs) frankly. I mean, okay, so where do I begin here? So just months after the plan was approved, there was a mayoral election in late 1903, and Mayor Seth Lowe, who had appointed Lindenthal to the position, lost the election to George McClellan Jr. And then Mm -hmm. that new mayor fired Lindenthal and then replaced him with a whole new team. Uh, who then made further modifications to the bridge. This is sounding like too many cooks in the kitchen, right? Too many, <laughs> yeah. or too many architects at the drawing board. You've got too many people involved here. Who's ultimately yeah, were, in charge? Yeah, there were just lots of people who put this bridge together. It's, it's hard to just like say with, you know, that this was just a Lindenthal design bridge because there's a lot of things that were changed. Um, a lot of critics, you know, did weigh in during the construction of the bridge. Even Lindenthal, you know, from, a, from afar, from a critic's role. And then as people began seeing that really long, at this point, 1,700-foot continuous truss, rise over Blackwell's Island, you know, you could imagine that there was some uneasiness and some some were unsure of its strength. And then came August 29th, 1907, and the collapse of the Quebec Bridge, which was the longest cantilever bridge that was being constructed at the time. That disaster killed 75 people and was just this horrific tragedy that, I mean, you can quite imagine how that spooked New Yorkers. Mm -hmm. People were holding their breath, you know, especially here in the final days. And so then you can imagine how jumpy everyone was then a few months later in the winter of 1907 when it was revealed that the bridge had almost been destroyed by dynamite planted by a labor union saboteur. 
Now, luckily, that potential terrorist act was quickly discovered. So, it, you know, they stopped it from happening. But it's just it just placed another kind of grim blemish upon this project. So the bridge was having a hard time. I mean, as if mm-hmm. as if it wasn't bad enough that it was being called the Blackwell's Island Bridge. <laughs> you know, it's yeah, like I mean, just. Yeah. And, you know, believe it or not, people at the time thought so as well. Maybe that's completely unsurprising. And so unofficially, people in Queens in particular were already calling it the Queens Borough Bridge. So the people oh. there already, it was already taking on an unofficial name. To quote from the Brooklyn Standard Union on May 19th, 1908, quote, Civic organizations and the businessmen of Queens have resolved to make every effort to have the name Queensboro accepted by the city. They argue that the present appellation suggests nothing more than the penal and corrective institutions of the city situations on the island. So much drama, so much woe. And the bridge hadn't even opened yet. No. We'll get to the opening of the Queensboro Bridge and the growth of Queens right after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Tom, enough of the drama. We're going to leave the drama. We're going to leave it back in 2020. <laughs> 2020. We're going to leave it. Yes. And we're going to leave it in the back in the first part of the show because we're going to celebrate yes. now. Okay. Finally, we have a bridge that's being built mm-hmm. between Queens and Manhattan. So how did they celebrate back in 1909? Well, they celebrated like they always did back in the day, you know, with endless parades. <laughs> Nobody threw a parade like New Yorkers back in the day. No. And, and in this case, they, they threw a massive parade in June of 1909 and had eight days of celebrating the opening of this bridge. But first, actually, before they opened it in in June, the bridge was open to the public actually two months before, on March 30th, 1909, when tens of thousands of people crammed onto the pedestrian walkways to walk back and forth for the first time between Manhattan and Queens. And we should say that, just to be clear, the walkways are on either side of the bridge, Mm -hmm. not like the Brooklyn Bridge, where it's kind of on top of the bridge. Right. They were, when it opened, they were on the, um, there were two walkways on the top level uh, that would change over the years. But the big event kicked off on June 12th of 1909. They built giant grandstands, you know, to handle the crowds of spectators um, at Queensboro Plaza. They put up huge tents, three big tents to hold nightly spectacles and sporting events, theatrical performances. They had a, a tent dedicated to a circus that was held throughout the party. <laughs> Now that 
is how you open a bridge. <laughs> That's right. And that parade that they organized on the opening day was truly something else. Naturally, Mayor McClellan was in the first car to cross over the bridge with tens of thousands of people behind him. Now, the New York Times wrote on its front page on Sunday, June 13th, 1909, about the previous day's opening celebration, quote, 300,000 sea queens linked to Old City. The article states, a big jostling crowd, good-natured crowd, estimated at 200,000 to 300,000 persons, brief speeches of congratulation by the governor of the state, the secretary of war, and city officials, and a huge parade of military, civic, industrial, and social organizations swinging its 10 miles of length past the reviewing stands while thousands cheered were some of the features marking the opening of the Queensboro Bridge yesterday. Did I hear you correctly that the parade was 10 miles long? <laughs> Apparently, I mean, according to the article, they marched from 34th Street and 5th Avenue to 59th, and then they turned east, and they marched straight out over the bridge. But, yeah, I can't imagine that it really was 10 miles long, which is the equivalent of 200 blocks. <laughs> That's a lot of circus. <laughs> the The article continues, you know, making this celebration sounding like the most wholesome celebration I've ever heard of. Quote, with a brief lull in the afternoon where everyone either went home for dinner or made ravenous onslaughts of the pie, milk, and sandwich counters, mm. this, <laughs> this celebration was renewed with the same vigor at night. The Great Bridge was brilliantly illuminated by thousands of incandescent electric lights and later enveloped as if by a sheet of flame when the fireworks were set off. This lasted for two hours, and then as many persons as possible crowded into the big tent where 6,000 seats had been provided to hear some Long Island girls sing The Mockingbird. Some Long Island girls? <laughs> But it sounds like they've never seen a bridge before, which we know is not true. Or Long Island girls. <laughs> or, Lo or Long Island girls. <laughs> Nevertheless, all of this spectacle sounds marvelous. All these electric lights, mm -hmm. the pyrotechnics. I mean, this was a flashy celebration. And it went on for a week, actually for eight days. Um, on Tuesday, there was a, a quote, big baby parade uh, with prizes <laughs> for the... <f> <laughs> With prizes for the <laughs> finest and fattest babies. Fat babies? No, it was called it was called the Big Baby Parade. Oh my. But there there were indeed Goodness. yeah, prizes for fat babies. Well, because they were healthy babies. It was let's just it's, yeah. it's it was Put it in they context, were, yeah. Yeah, healthy, healthy babies. Yeah. They staged a fifteen mile marathon. They threw a motor race, you know, to draw in automobile enthusiasts from around the country because they could go over the bridge. And of course, Every night, they staged another production of The Mockingbird. Oh, there was even a beauty pageant, the, the so-called Bridge Girl competition. Do we know who the, who the queen was? Who the Bridge Girl queen? We do, as a matter of fact. New Yorkers cast their ballots by mail, and they selected a woman named Elizabeth Augenti. Uh, who was 19 years old and lived, appropriately enough, in Long Island City. She worked for the Long Island Guaranteed Trust Company, which was a real estate company, so I don't know if this whole thing was rigged. Um, and her father owned a row of brownstones uh, in the Jackson-Vernon Avenue section of, of Queens. Now, according to an article that was published in the Daily News on October 4th, 1981, so many years later, obviously, Legend has it that Elizabeth beat out a young woman from Brooklyn for the crown, a certain 16-year-old performer named Mae West. <gasps> Maybe she did win. Maybe all those mail-in votes were rigged. <laughs> I think we definitely need to explore this deeper, but it's according to some, Mae West could have been crowned Bridge Girl. For more on Mae West and her Brooklyn origins, we did a whole show, episode 182, called Mae West, Sex on Broadway. So many bridges between the boroughs today are free. They're mm -hmm. not toll bridges, mm -hmm. few of them. Was that the case with the Queensboro in 1909? 
Um, not when it opened. When it opened, you needed to pay a toll collector a uh, 10-cent fare to drive across the bridge. And, and that would remain in effect for just two years before it was dropped. And that was for horse-drawn carriages and, I'm assuming, for new automobiles. Yeah, that's um, actually, autos were already more common when it opened in 1909. Oh, yeah. And of course, you know, in these very few years, it proved to be a resounding success. There was already so much traffic. Yeah, well, which is not really surprising, I guess, because the city in general was experiencing explosive population growth. And this new bridge linking congested Midtown East to rather sparsely developed Queens uh, became extremely popular and very busy. And not just busy with cars and with carriages, but also with public transit. You know, the bridge was immediately equipped with trolley lines soon after it opened. And then seven years later, it would also support the Second Avenue Elevated Railroad. And other rail and transit links would follow. I mean, just to imagine this, the revolution here, right? You just, there's no more waiting for ferries. You could just take the bridge over. It's so much faster. Yeah, there was a trolley terminal that was located on the Manhattan side at 2nd Avenue between 59th and 60th. And so from there, you could hop on six different trolley lines that served Astoria and Steinway and Flushing and other destinations or that ran along Queens Boulevard. Or you could take another trolley that just went back and forth across the bridge to Queens Plaza and then turned around and came back. There's almost no trace of, of trolley service today. We don't think about it all that much, but it was mm -hmm. so crucial back then in just getting around. Kind of like bus service today. Yeah. Or the subway. But, you know, there were just more trolley lines. But speaking of the subway, the first subway tunnel to extend under the East River to Queens wouldn't be completed until 1920. So for years, I mean, the trolley was a main form of transit here. And you could ride back and forth over the bridge, two rides for a nickel. And as transportation gets more sophisticated, as the vehicles get more sophisticated, the bridge would have to change over the years. Yeah, absolutely. It would change many times. And not just the Queensboro, most of the bridges have changed. For example, when the Queensboro Bridge opened, pedestrians had two walkways on the top level, right? On the north side and south side of the top level. They would soon share that level with the elevated trains that started running seven years later, while four different trolley lines ran beneath them, along with only three lanes for vehicles. But by the end of the 1920s, there was only one lane for pedestrians and two more on that top level for vehicles. And, you know, and then over the decades, the trolleys and the elevateds would disappear entirely and the pedestrian walkway would be brought down to the lower level. So those different lanes would change uses as demanded by changes in the mode of transportation. But Tom, we, we need to talk about one rather interesting characteristic of this Queensboro Bridge trolley. Mm -hmm. uh, very fascinating to think about that halfway across the bridge, it would stop at a traffic light. Ah, yes. And that would be for those who were heading down to Welfare Island. Yes, they had changed the name from Blackwell's Island to the even more disturbing name of Welfare Island. And they did that because, you know, the institutions by the 19-teens, those institutions on Blackwell's Roosevelt Island were home to about 10,000 people. There were about 10,000 people mm -hmm. living on that island and hundreds, if not thousands, who were serving those people or working in some capacity on the island. People needed to get there, and they, they had only had about, you know, 15 ferries that were floating people back and forth to Manhattan that were getting overcrowded. So they decided to figure out a way to use this new bridge to help get people down to Welfare Island. To quote from NYC Roads, quote, A four-cab elevator service began between the lower decks of the Queensboro Bridge and the island. The service, which had served 230,000 cars per year by the early 1950s, provided the only public connection to Welfare Island. So not only could you step off the trolley mm -hmm. and then you know take the stairs, but there was this elevator where people could then drive their cars off the bridge into the elevator and down to the island, which is a 
fascinating piece of architecture, which is no longer there, but it's wonderful to think about. Yeah. And it's it's amazing because it wasn't just an elevator. It was an elevator inside a building. Okay. In 1916, they built this nine-story elevator storehouse that was located about 60 feet north of the bridge. They, they kept it far enough away from the bridge so that if the building would catch on fire, it wouldn't actually catch the bridge on fire. And connecting this building with the bridge was a a 60-foot walkway made out of steel. So you would actually get off that trolley on the bridge at the light and walk down some steps, pass underneath the bridge in a walkway and across and into this building where you'd take elevators down. It's fascinating. That's stunning. Well, they don't have that anymore, partially because in 1955, they opened the Welfare Island Bridge, which is an actual vehicular bridge from Queens to the island, okay? So that really took away the need for this Queensboro service, uh, and it was shut down. Although, interestingly, this was one of the last trolley services to remain in operation in all of New York Oh, into the late 1950s. But I don't think that we can oversell the fact that this bridge led to huge residential growth in Queens. It just made working in Manhattan and living in Queens, possible. How many people, Greg, did you say lived in Queens in 1900? A little over 150,000. Okay, well, the bridge opens in 1909. In 1910, the population was 284,000. Okay, 10 years later, in 1920, 469,000. And by 1930, 10 years later, 1,079,000. So it more than doubled between 1920 and 1930. And in many of these cases, these were families who were moving out of, you know, packed quarters in Manhattan to to brand new modern apartment developments or single family home developments out in Queens. And the 1920s saw, of course, huge real estate speculation throughout the whole city, but mm-hmm. especially here in Queens. Yeah. And the, the real estate industry had been waiting for that bridge to open and those trolleys to start running. You know, they were pitching Queens real estate not just for residential purposes, but also for for businesses. You know, you could get your factory out of the cramped streets of Manhattan and into wide open space with parking lots and easy access to, you know, mm-hmm. highways. The newspapers at the time are just filled with full page real estate ads that are just screaming about the, the benefits of moving to Queens. Like this full page ad in the Brooklyn Daily Eagle from September 8th, 1910. It was placed by the Queensboro Corporation, dealers in and developers of real estate in the borough of Queens. They say in their ad, quote, to home seekers, the Queensboro Corporation offers some of the most attractive residential property now available in and around greater New York. Payment, same as rent, if desired. To manufacturers and businessmen, the Queensboro Corporation presents a large and unusual selection of sites suitable for factories, stores, shops, etc. These sites are not in some remote locality, but in New York's most rapidly growing manufacturing center at the heart of transportation improvements, where you can have cars right at your door and connection with all trunk lines and are within an easy haul of New York City markets. And then my favorite at the bottom, it says, from New Pennsylvania Station to your home in 10 minutes. (laughs) Seems a bit far-fetched, but you know. Wow. (laughs) You know, another reason that I attach the Queensboro Bridge to the 1920s in particular is Mm -hmm. because isn't it mentioned... In The Great Gatsby. Yes, F. Scott Fitzgerald's 1925 classic. Fitzgerald would famously um, extol the the sight of Manhattan that one takes in driving across the Queensboro Bridge. He writes, quote, Over the great bridge, with the sunlight through the girders making a constant flicker upon the moving cars, with the city rising up across the river in white heaps and sugar lumps, all built with a wish out of non-olfactory money. The city seen from the Queensboro Bridge is always the city seen for the first time, in its first wild promise of all the mystery and the beauty in the world. It's really quite a beautiful compliment. Yeah, I'm just imagining this glitzy, glamorous, elegant Mm. bridge. Jazz age. Jazz age. 
Art Deco. Um, well, let's come back to this bridge in like about three decades, right? So mm-hmm. imagine this like this bridge with millions and millions of cars over the decades from the 1920s when Fitzgerald wrote that into the, a major automobile crisis in New York City with all of these highways feeding into the Queensboro Bridge, of course, and, you know, pretty much everything being a traffic jam from nine to five, almost on every other bridge. It was a disaster, pretty much. Mm. You can imagine how much wear and tear the Queensboro Bridge saw. So one victim of all of this deterioration were those beautiful spires, which had even served as flagpoles at the very top of the bridge. Well, those were dismantled in 1960 because the framework was badly corroded. Like they could have crumbled onto the highway. You know, that's a... Those could have really injured somebody. What a loss. And what happened to the Guastavino tiles in the market underneath the Manhattan side? Well, sadly the Great Depression pretty much killed off the food market that was down there. And then that cavernous space was used for storage for decades by the highway department. Okay, so that is Mm. horrifying. Those Guasavino tiles were covered in, you know, decades of layers of dirt until the 1990s when the whole place was renovated. Today, it is an event space called Guastavino. Oh. So when we can have events again, you can go in and see the, see the tiles for yourself. And part of it for years was a food emporium grocery store, which closed in 2015 and was slated pre-COVID to be turned into a Trader Joe's. Hopefully that'll still happen. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, it was meant to be a food market. Um, now, I'm just going to skip past some of the details of the Bridges history here now that we're here in the 60s, because... What's happening in the borough of Queens in the second half of the 20th century is really, really interesting. If you think of the Queensboro Bridge as kind of a gateway and one of the very first gateways that really opened up Queens for great development, well, you know, by the mid-century, there were a couple more gateways into Queens and into New York and into the United States in general. And that is, of course, the two Queens airports, LaGuardia, in, which opened in 1939, and then JFK in 1948. And obviously the opening of neither of these would do anything to alleviate traffic on the bridge. No, no, no. But it is symbolic of something which happens in the late 1960s after the passage of the Federal Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965 abolishing national quotas, and then opening the doors for people from all nationalities uh, to come to America. And Queens is especially affected by this with huge immigrant communities today. Um, As of this recording, Queens has the second highest population in the boroughs, Brooklyn being number one, but many consider Queens to be the most ethnically diverse urban area in the entire world. And Queens, we must add, has been the birthplace of many notable, famous, and even infamous Americans. So then by the 1960s and 70s, you've got this exciting new population growth, people from all over the world settling into this newly ethnically diverse borough Mm -hmm. of Queens, which contrasts then, I suppose, with with something like the Queensboro Bridge, which seems kind of antiquated, right? Even by the 60s and 70s, it had only been around for 60 years, but it seems like it's a relic from another era. And I I suspect that it would have even been deemed inadequate for the job of a growing borough. Luckily, however, it was declared a New York City landmark in 1974, so it wasn't going anywhere. And I think... For a bridge that, you know, often gets overshadowed by the Brooklyn Bridge, mm-hmm. you know, it has a couple really fun, notable moments in pop culture, uh, notably the, the song that you played earlier in the show, the 59th Street Bridge song, Perens, Feeling Groovy, Perens, <laughs> by Simon and Garfunkel, 1966. But the bridge, but the bridge makes a very prominent appearance in the 1979 Woody Allen film, Manhattan where the bridge is a backdrop to perhaps one of the most classic scenes in all of 1970s film. 
Yeah, what a memorable and gorgeous view of the bridge and also of Manhattan. Yeah, it is a beautiful view, but everyone knows that the best view of the Queensboro Bridge is actually from the Roosevelt Island Tramway. Perhaps our favorite conveyance, Greg, in this entire city. <laughs> One that we were geeking out on years before we even started doing the show. Mm-hmm. And the tramway sits just north of the bridge. It runs from from Manhattan over to Roosevelt Island. Now we're calling it Roosevelt Island by this time. Mm-hmm. When did that open? It, it definitely has a 70s vibe to it. <laughs> yeah, it opened in 1976. Uh, it was built, of course, to accommodate the residents of Roosevelt Island. Uh, there was now all this innovative housing out there on the island and the the subway which actually goes there today hadn't had not yet opened in 1976 so they built this Mm -hmm. as kind of a temporary thing but they actually loved it and it became kind of a big tourist attraction um people were enamored of it and so they they just kept it running speaking of 1976 by the way that year the new york city marathon became a five borough event they used to just you know run around central park a million times well now literally a million <laughs> yeah it's now a five borough event and runners to this day run over the queensboro bridge into the final stretch into manhattan which leads me tom to my final thought for the evening and that is like, just generally speaking, what do you call this bridge? Uh, I call it the Ed Koch 59th Street Queensboro Blackwells Island Bridge. <laughs> you? So, well, so it is actually named for the mayor of New York, Ed Koch. Its name is the Ed Koch Queensboro Bridge. That was announced in, on December of 2010 and then signed into law by Mayor Bloomberg the following year. You know, but New Yorkers are stubborn. They don't often, you know, take to a <laughs> bunch of new names. I mean, everything has new names. No one really uses those names. Although, I, you know, I feel like I could learn to call it the Ed Koch Bridge. You know, in fact, Tom, Mr. Koch himself thought that New Yorkers would have a problem with this. Quoting from the Daily News in 2010, quote, Koch said yesterday he was honored that his name would grace the cantilevered span, noting that he has taken it hundreds of times, if not more, to get to the Hamptons. Ooh. <laughs> but, but he recognized the name swap uh, might not settle in with residents overnight. Quote, I hope it will be sooner, but it will probably be 50 years before people refer to it that way. Now, there was a man who understood history. (laughs) So no matter what you call it, we hope that you have enjoyed our tale of this historic bridge and, of course, the birth of the borough that it serves. For more uh, beautiful images of the bridge and of the early days of Queens, visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where we'll have more information about this subject and, of course, all sorts of pretty things to look at on our website. You can also visit us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at BoweryBoys. And while you're surfing around on the interwebs, why not also drop in on the websites of the Greater Astoria Historical Society and the Roosevelt Island Historical Society for much more on the on the bridge and also Roosevelt Island and Queens. A huge thank you to our patrons who have joined us at patreon.com slash boys. Patrons, it's because of you that mm-hmm. we're able to dedicate all of our time to making the Bowery Boys happen. It's because of you that we could walk back and forth, ride a bike across the the Queensboro Bridge to do research earlier (laughs) last week. Um, And we'll talk about that actually in our patron-only podcast, The Bowery Boys Takeout. Yes, we're going to have a new episode of that to go alongside this show where we'll be talking about a few things that. And uh, Tom, I found a possible explanation for all the bad luck that happened at the Queensboro Bridge. Oh, uh, you'll have to tune in to our Patreon only extra the takeout uh, to find out. You can get that by going to patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. 
Be sure also to head over to BoweryBoysWalks.com. We have some really fun virtual tours. We're still doing virtual tours, folks, for the time being. But there are fun and fascinating ways to learn more about the city's history. Uh, We have new tours like the East Village in the 1970s, Greenwich Village in the 60s, a Gilded Age tour of mansions of Fifth Avenue, Kyle's new West Village musical walking tour. Wow. And new tours coming soon on Brooklyn Heights and the Lower East Side. Join the fun and get a ticket over at BoweryBoysWalks.com. So our next episode is number 350, and it's going to be an extra special one. So make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss it. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.